You're listening to Playback, a Variety podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. We're in the thick of the summer movie season, and next on the list of tentpole extravaganzas is Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. My guest today has been along for the ride every step of the way as this property has exploded over the last 14 years. He's an Oscar winner and a three-time nominee besides, and he's also an Emmy winner who finds himself back on the small screen this year as one of the most iconic figures in history. His name is Jeffrey Rush, and we're very happy he's able to join us. Welcome, sir. Thank you. And when you say tentpole, it's like, <laughs> does that mean it is a circus? Isn't well, it? I, I, th- I think the what is the concept comes from uh, it's those movies that can prop up all the other movies. Right? Uh, yeah, so. I know. I, I go for the circus metaphor <laughs> yeah, because uh, the summer. When does that go back to? Maybe Jaws and stuff like that, where they Jaws, went. Yeah. You know what? We're going to pitch this film uh, and blitz a particular month. Mm-hmm. Maybe they took the the direction from you know when did the beach boys release their best singles <laughs> surf time you know what i mean yeah and all the kids are out of school yeah, they yeah. Go to the movie. pop cultural uh, savvy yeah definitely mm. well like i said this one's blown up considerably over the last 15 years or so i can't believe it was that long ago that these movies started though yeah well there's a reality to it for me because my kids were very young mm-hmm. at the time, and now they're young adults finding their feet in the 21st century. So I go, yeah, it's been 15 years. But mind <laughs> you, I think Hector Barbosa, is, he must be now 94. <laughs> There's been a time jump, a magical movie time jump, yeah. because we've introduced Will Turner's son. Yeah. We've all got older. Yeah. I thought Barbosa was old in the original film. Mm-hmm. When I look at it now, I go, who is that sparkling young man up on the screen with a sword? Yeah. <laughs> well, by the way, if you hear any commotion behind us, uh, we're at the junket here. Jeffrey's been, mm. uh, you're at the tail end of just a whirlwind of press, right? You've been all around the world on this movie. Uh, eight days ago, I left Melbourne and flew to Shanghai. My first trip to China, it was very memorable. It was to Shanghai, which is a fascinating city to go to. Uh, I think they have a Disneyland that opened there maybe a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had the great privilege of releasing a Hollywood blockbuster movie for its global premiere, the first time ever in China. Mm-hmm. Then we flew to Paris for a couple of days, and then we flew to L.A. So I've, I keep changing the time and date on my iphone <laughs> yeah i imagine so well like i said this is you know the last 15 years this has blown up and you've been there every step of the way so uh what has the ride been like the phenomenon of pirates of the caribbean to be a part of it for so long uh, i think there were t-shirts already the crew were already wearing t-shirts on the film the first film the curse of the black pearl that just said live in the ride <laughs> yeah uh which was Kind of true. There was some, you know, cynical negative press at the time. People going, oh, my God, Hollywood's now scraping the bottom of the barrel and they're doing theme park rides as a narrative basis. Mm -hmm. But I had seen at some point a documentary about uh, Walt Disney himself. Uh, the, The Pirates of the Caribbean ride was his last great project. 
and it was in that era where he was experimenting with animatronics and imagineering i think was the word they coined and i'd i'd been on the ride long before i got involved with the film and it still baffles me i don't really have a particularly scientific engineering brain i just don't know how they worked out the water levels <laughs> yeah water's supposed to find its own center of gravity you know yeah. and you start in some kind of firefly ridden nighttime louisiana siding and then you go down i don't know 40 feet on a slide and you lose complete control over way the, your gyrus your mental gyroscope is taking to you because it's all about imagination and uh, i know that from that documentary he he did a lot of history you know it was an 18th century phenomenon all the imperial nations in Europe, you know, Protestant, Britain, Catholic Spain, the Portuguese, the Dutch, all the great seafaring nations, they were colonizing the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of booty on boats <laughs> traveling to and fro, and there were just some hackers of their particular era who went, you know what, I could kill a few people and take some of that. Yeah, That's the basis of it. But, of course, you know, as we know in literature, there's, you know, Treasure Island and spin-offs, Treasure Planet. Uh, there's always been Peter Pan with Captain Hook. But somehow the, the, the heroic mythology of the pirate figure has kind of extended beyond any of the reality. Mm-hmm. Because at that time, uh, they were probably all criminals. And they were out of the jurisdiction of the law by going to sea. There was a sense of freedom. And Johnny Depp always talks about this when he was creating Jack Sparrow, just the irreverence. You know, Jack Sparrow to me is like a Jack Kerouac. He's an existential wanderer. Mm-hmm. He has a compass and just goes, where will I go next? A bit like Dice Man, you mm -hmm. know, throw the dice and go, I'm gambling on the next phase of my life. Yeah. Uh, and that seems to appeal to something very primal in kids and adults about, wouldn't it be cool if you could just... And there's the brotherhood, mm -hmm. you know. They would share the booty. Yeah. Um, and but they probably had a... a, a an astonishing sense of freedom so you know between the romanticism of piracy you know if you look at piracy now it's people smuggling and it is hacking yeah it's it's not it's not a particularly attractive lifestyle yeah but the 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 fantasy yearning towards that seems to dominate halloween nights kids going to dress up parties they go as pirates and it may not have it may not have even been something that was current in their, in their pop cultural lives. It's having a sword and... I think Errol Flynn probably had a lot to do well, with that. Well, yeah, no, there was that. Because, yeah. the, well, the pirate genre in films really kind of started to fade seriously, I think, maybe around Burt Lancaster, the Crimson Pirate, mm -hmm. and in the 50s. People struggled for a while to kind of 
revitalize that genre. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Jerry Bruckheimer is a very creative producer that he went into the mythological aspects of pirate life, fighting sea monsters, being afraid of falling off the edge of the planet, mm -hmm. and all those, you know, the feral mermaids, beautiful sirens that turn nasty. Yeah. And now we're into zombie sharks and <laughs> the undead kind of... Uh, uh, I'm sure they exist in every pirate song. Yeah. It would have been a rough life out there on the ocean, I think. Uh, I imagine so. Well, just as an actor, you know, in all of this we're talking about, is it... Uh, because, you know, classically, these ideas, pirates, there's something... I don't know, Baroque or something about them. Is is that like catnip for particularly a theater actor to, uh, yeah. to play? Yeah. Uh, you know, when Johnny and I first got together and started to talk about how do we avoid the stereotypes and when we were making the film and when it was promoted in that summer of 2003, we were very low down on the list. Everyone went, well, it's a ride. Um, mm who knows, there is no successful pirate genre mm -hmm. um, that's alive at the moment. Uh, and Johnny has talked a lot about um, the, the British rock stars of the 60s, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of costuming and branding that they had as performers, and Keith Richards in particular, uh, was a big inspiration for, for Johnny. And I think that's why he... By chapters two and three, he obviously said to Jerry, hey, why don't we get Keith in and he could be my dad, <laughs> you know. And now on this film, we've got Paul McCartney, who's Jack's uncle. Yeah. Uh, and that made me think, well, it's great to know that, that Jack Sparrow has a family. You wonder what their holiday reunions would be like, because they're all, they're all as mad as cut snakes. Um. Uh, and Sir Paul makes a great appearance in it. He sings. His dialogue is extremely loopy. It's part of the <laughs> spirit of comedy that permeates these films. Yeah. Uh, truly random question, but I thought about it earlier today when I was preparing. I was like, you know, Barbosa, these movies take place like mid-18th century loosely. Mm-hmm. Uh, which makes Barbosa and the Marquis de Sade contemporaries. Yeah. Maybe kind you've been asked of. this before, but what yeah. would happen if those two guys met each other? I don't know. <laughs> I am drawn, you know, I've played proportionately a number of real-life figures, but the Marquis de Sade, uh, I'd been in the play Marat Sade, so I'd already done a serious bit of homework and, and enjoyment of engagement, of the immersion in that kind of world. Uh, and I remember saying to Phil Kaufman, but, you know, you need Marlon Brando for this role, because I know in 1808, um, the Marquis de Sade had been incarcerated for quite some time, and he was a very solid Buddha-like figure. And he said, yeah, 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 but no, Doug Wright's written this screenplay where it's the fantasy of de Sade making himself the lithe wiry hero of his own life. Mm -hmm. It's like somebody writing their own biography, mm -hmm. autobiography, and um, fantasizing about their identity. 
Uh, and then, you know, with someone like Peter Sellers, they're well known, and you, you've got to look at all of those elements of how much, how much expectation might there be in the audience. But when I look at all of those, any character I've played, whether it's a pelican or the Ra, the sun god of Egypt, I, I do get drawn towards big landscapes that have characters that occupy that space. I'm not really a kind of domestic, mm -hmm. psychological, interior actor, mm -hmm. you know. And I love... Uh, I love silent films, which had that in bucket loads. They, what they, what the silent clowns could fill the screen with was always like. Well, you've studied mime technique yourself, and I did, and that drew me to go and study mime movement and theatre at the Jacques Lecoq School in Paris. Uh, and those those were the days of Cinematheque. You know, you could go and see everything on the big screen because mm -hmm. there was no Netflix, there were no VHSs. You know. Mm -hmm. That appealed to me. Eisenstein was a big hero. I liked uh, I liked the extravagance. Fellini, uh, the worlds of those films really caught my imagination. So when uh, when pirates came along, um, I don't know. It's the it was breaking the mold in a certain degree. I'd been playing more serious characters like. Walsingham advising Queen Elizabeth I or being Javert in the adaptation of, you know, Raphael Iglesias's really great screenplay based on the Victor Hugo novel. Um, it goes back to when I was a theatre actor in, in repertory situations. I just liked being different role by role by role, mm -hmm. season by season by season. Uh, and trying to find stuff that um, kept me excited and hopefully kept a subscription audience excited because they're going to see the same team of actors play after play after play. Well, re regarding the uh, real-life characters you've played, obviously you're playing Albert Einstein in Genius for National Geographic's Genius. Uh, you know, it, it's strange because you seem perfect for that role, but I would have never thought, oh, Je Jeffrey Rush should play Einstein. Uh, what did you think when when the material came to you? And did you think, uh, yeah, I have this in me. I can I can definitely. Do this. Uh, my first thought was, do I have this in me? Because Einstein's image was an Apple ad on the side of a building in L.A. At one point, I yeah. remember. Think different. Think I think different, was yeah. the was the 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 premise behind all of that. Um, he's a T-shirt. He's an, he's an emoji. Everyone knows the hair, everyone knows he was a theoretical physicist, but I think, uh, you know, Ron Howard coming on board as the wish list guest director to set up through his imagined company the whole 10 part series. Because originally, uh, the original writing creative team were looking at doing a movie and they realized you can't. You're going to fall into so many cliched biopic pitfalls. Mm -hmm. And this guy's life is, okay, we sort of know the famous older guy because he was as famous as Chaplin or Lindbergh or, you know, in a, in a different pre-celebrity era. Um, 
but where did this guy come from? So with the the pleasures you can get from a ten hour limited form series, you get to go into more character detail and with my doppelganger, uh, the wonderful Johnny Flynn, playing the younger me, uh, you just get to explore his student era, you know. Uh, and then as part of my study for it, I was reading about, you know, what was education like in Germany in the late 19th century. And it was a very sophisticated, complicated period where scientific and industrial developments were happening left, right, and center. You know, in the 1890s, we were given the movie camera. We were given the automobile. You know, x-rays were discovered. Marconi, wireless, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, giddy times, Marie Curie, and all of that stuff. Great scientific development. Um, very male bastion, you know. That's why I, I love in the Genius series, you get more time to spend with the relationships that Einstein had, let's say, with his first wife, Maleva Maric. She was as bright as he was. They were both freaks of, I don't know, whatever, whatever wash of DNA creates... Uh, a high IQ or a genius mind. She had that in bucket loads, but of course she was up against a very male bastion of no no women allowed. Mm-hmm. You know. And in a ten-hour series, there's time to explore that and and the breakdown of that marriage and so forth. Well, uh, you touched on this, but as you say, he's. Einstein's not really a real person to us. He's, he's like mythology in some way at this yeah. point. So as you started to peel back those layers, what was the most surprising thing that you learned about him? Um, I suppose with any of those historical characters, you you have to kind of go, okay, what's their, what's their heritage from academic perception or whatever about why we know they were famous? But what was their domestic life? What was their daily life like? You know, mm-hmm. um, and, and National Geographic. You know, they were really the ideal team to take on this kind of massive rebranding that they were after. Because I think the magazine is something like 130 years old. Mm. You know, and since all of their cable network stuff, they have been at the cutting edge of the kind of macro photography where you can look at the life of termites in their mound, you know what I mean, with kind of breathtaking photography and, and, and scientific analysis and so forth. So they seem like the right people to launch this idea of their first scripted drama series to go, we just want to find out who was Einstein. Um, And the writers were able to, well, Walter Isaacson's book is uh, forensically detailed in in his research. Um, And the, the dramatic qualities of Einstein's life emerged 
that if you have a genius who loves the solitude with his own brain, and he knew he was, he had a gift. I wouldn't say he was egocentric. There must be a touch of ego uh, in a person like that. But it was the fallout from broken marriages or a successful marriage or extramarital affairs or disconnect with his children as they grow older. And the great thing about having this ten-part form is that the two children that are born in the early 20th century, there's finally, by the end of the series, a rapprochement with an estranged son. When I'm 76 and he's 54, and you think, you could have got onto that earlier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know. Yeah. Well, you, regarding just having the, the ability to breathe and to tell the story in a longer form, I was speaking to an actor recently who's in a limited series, and, and uh, you know, I guess the question is, uh, do you feel like your timing as an actor shifts? Like, maybe you don't want to go for a certain thing you would go for sooner in the process and like this this actor was saying the filmmaker was asking him no wait let's wait on that do you do you feel your instincts shift a little bit when you're involved in something that's told over such a long period of time as opposed to a movie or a play where the timing is laid out uh i think the most driving new force i felt about all of that was just age I suddenly realized I went, oh, my God, I'm in my 60s. Um, I never really thought about age because even when I was in my 20s, I was a character actor in the theater and I was playing older people and eccentric people. Or, you know, I was going through all the classical repertoire of Nikolai Gogol and Ben Jonson and Beaumarchais and Shakespeare and pursuing all the kind of crazy roles, the ones who were on the outer concentric circle. I was never the guy at the middle. Mm-hmm. I was never the juve lead. I never played a Romeo or a Hamlet. I was always the rat bags and the <laughs> idiots and Leah's fool, you know, in the outer concentric circle. Uh, and when I hit my 60s, I thought, well, you know, I, I played Lady Bracknell on stage and then I last year I had a a bold attempt at playing King Lear and, and Ra, the sun god of Egypt, uh, you know, keeping it, keep mixing it up. Um, uh, so when Einstein came up, I thought, you know, this is, uh, this, is a, this is a character actor's dream. And I always had a bent for science. I was a failed physics chemistry student at high school. I had fantasies of being an astronomer, mostly because of the Mercury space program. Mm -hmm. That was an equal force in my adolescence as were the Beatles or the surf sound. You know, in Australia, we got all the West Coast surf sound mixed in with the Mersey sound and so forth. But the the space program really kind of excited you know my imagination big right stuff fan then oh yeah of course yeah that's why i had to work with phil kaufman yeah, that film on top of the tom wolf book you know it was it was digging into behind the mythology mm-hmm. 
You know what I mean? It's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, yeah. It, it is one of the great American films. Yeah. Uh, regarding TV, uh, you know, it's it's such a fever pitch now. It's such a dominant form, TV. Mm. And uh, I don't know if you're aware of what's going on in Cannes right now. I, I, and I just wanted to pick your brain about it to see what you think. Mm. But Netflix has two titles. I know. I'm aware of the Almodovar Will Smith argument. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, no, and, I keep track. And going forward, <laughs> Cannes won't uh, allow a filming competition if it hasn't had a theatrical, or yeah. doesn't have plans for a theatrical. Look, uh, that kind of dialectic is what makes the whole shebang important and fascinating that this debate rears its head you know mm -hmm. you can listen you know when you listen to great ideas in a debate form and you okay uh, i think the essence of what almodovar was saying was and i agree with it and was more enchanted by it he said there's something about the big screen And the history of cinema has always been it's bigger than the room you're in. Mm -hmm. You kind of lose peripheral extremities of what you're being immersed in. And I love the fact that he used the word, you, you must, as an audience member, you must be humbled by the world of the imagery that you're being asked into by the masters of film language. And I take that on board. And I would say with the current Pirates film, given that there's been a hacking scam and all that, you, you don't want to watch this on a phone. You don't want to watch this on a laptop. You don't even want to watch it on a 16-9 ratio plasma LED screen. It's an event, you know. Go and see it in Dolby Atmos and 3D and... IMAX because it's it's a rock concert it's created with that scale of budget and that kind of sense of event mm -hmm. and then you know I was really pleased that Will Smith just countered that by going well I'm raising my kids and Netflix allows them to watch anything from anywhere from any period of history and it's broadening their knowledge of cinema you know and you go That's the debate we're in. Yeah, you know. To be fair, Mr. There Smith. were people. I was. I've always been a big silent film fan, you know. And when when films started to talk, everyone thought it was like it was a cheesy idea. Yeah. Because if you look at the developments in the technical developments in cinematography from the mid-teens to the late twenties, it was a pictorial art form and if you were lucky enough to be in one of the big cities it would have an orchestral accompaniment mm -hmm. and you were looking at a kind of light and sound event you know yeah it's it's like all these light shows they have in cities now we have them in sydney vivid where they light buildings and just do stuff with music and light mm -hmm. the idea of characters talking They were the moving pictures. And there was that clumsy period where once you put a microphone, and this is where films like Singing in the Rain are so great, it's mm -hmm. like you get locked into sometimes um, the primitiveness of early technology, but exponentially. You look at the musical films that came out in 1928, 29, 
four years later, Busby Barclay was in there and there was a new consummate medium. Yeah. You know. That's the thing, I guess. It's like, how do you innovate going forward? At what point even do you move beyond the frame, beyond the proscenium? Like, and that's, you know, heady and getting into the future tech, but it's like... Well, TV you know, and cinema if we are, didn't... If we didn't have these these kinds of arguments, we'd probably still be watching short, titillating films in Nickelodeons. Yeah. You know what Trains I mean? Trains arriving they, in stations. Uh, yeah, they didn't know. Horses being electrocuted. <laughs> they didn't know then that this actually might become a major new art form. Uh, people like Melies knew. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the stage magic and the the trick photography of he he discovered a lot about editing and could do things that no vaudeville magician could ever achieve and yeah. that was within one or two years of the the medium being invented you yeah, know in the, the germans too a few years later with just what fritz lang was able to accomplish with uh metropolis and Sure, you know, sure. Kuleshov effect and just all these interesting innovations with yes. how you can... Uh, well, I am the patron of the Melbourne Film Festival and it seems globally, I think Toronto this year has had a big VR kind of push or Sundance is... Yeah. They're looking at where is this taking us, you know. My son's a gamer uh, and every over the last 10 years he's had, you know every kind of module from Atari to Xbox 360 or whatever. And I go in now and go, oh, what match are you watching? He goes, no, Dad, it's a game. And I'm going, but it looks like live TV. Mm -hmm. That's been exponential. And I don't know. I'm interested in what is the dramatic or comedic possibilities of that as an art form. Yeah. Yeah. you know, are we all going to be wearing virtual reality glasses and falling over in a space because we <laughs> we're confused? But it'll go somewhere. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, the last thing I wanted to ask—I I was going to get into some some of your other films, but the the one that I was kind of curious about, just what that set was like—it's uh, an oddball one, but Mystery Men. <laughs> what was that, that set? set like? You know, it's. Uh, I'm pleased to know, even like doing the junket today, there was a percentage of people who would go, "Hey, I'm a mystery man fan," <laughs> and you go, "That's great." And I know, you know, in the days of DVD, it snuck up on people in retrospect. Yeah. Um, I loved it because to me, I'd just done a couple of Elizabethan films in a row, and mm-hmm. I thought. I need that change. You know, I've got to get out of tights. And when a character's called Casanova Frankenstein, you go, there's got to be something in that, you know, (laughs) because I love characters that have extremities of contradictions within their makeup. Um, It was, when you look back at it, it was, I don't know how they got all of those extraordinary creative artists and comedians into the one room yeah there was something about that it was carrot comics and the legacy of all of that 
uh, and Gorva, uh, no, not Gorva, sorry, um, he'd been famous for these really high-powered imaginative Taco Bell, it was the Chihuahua oh, right, yeah. series of ads, Kinka Usher. You know, he was a cartoonist, like yeah. in the Tex Avery school. But we did have a lot of comedians, so the, we overshot that film. The, the, I think the final cut was three and a half hours, the, the rough cut. And they knew the studio wanted it down to be two hours, ten minutes or something. Yeah. We sadly lost some of the dimensions in the film that I think could have made it maybe more successful. But there are still people who come up to me and go, you know, they open their jacket and go, I am ballerina man. <laughs> well, that's that's a legacy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, again, uh, we've been talking to Jeffrey Rush here. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales opens in theaters tomorrow. And you can watch uh, Genius every Tuesday, I believe, through... Uh, in the States, I'm not sure. States, I think it yeah. is Tuesday. Yeah, through... It's about halfway through the 10-part run. And then it'll be... Because they're still editing. We were shooting up wow. until March. So they're still editing. I think they're still finally tweaking Eps 8, 9, and 10. But once they're out there, it'll be... The greatest thrill for us is... Uh, I think they had a CinemaCon screening and people started using the word binge-worthy. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a high the, compliment That's these the best days. slash you can put across a poster, I think. Well, uh, that's Tuesdays on National Geographic through June, and I think actually you can catch anything you've missed on that on demand right now here in the States. Yeah, so indeed. Do that. And again, thank you, Jeffrey Rush, for coming uh, on the show. My pleasure. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Thank you.